Well, good morning, everyone. We've almost completed a whole year in the book of Hebrews as a church. We're drawing to the end. We've got one chapter and a few verses to go. I've loved looking at this book together. I've enjoyed doing it on a Sunday, and I've loved taking it into our midweek Bible studies in our community as well. And I'm going to miss it, I think, at the end. Maybe we'll need to do it again next year, because I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. But today we're going to go to chapter 12, verses 18 to 28. So I'm going to read that to us now. So I'd encourage you to have a Bible open, and there's some at the back in the bookcase if you want to grab one. If not, grab your phone out or another device with it open. And it's going to, I'm going to go through it verse by verse, so it will be helpful if you have a copy of it this morning. So starting at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God challenging reading for us this morning. This chapter is a turning point, really, for the overall message of this book. We've moved from those big comparisons of the things of the old covenant with the new, sort of, into a guide of Christian living. But we'll see, um, as we go a bit further, we've still got these comparisons in a smaller way, but not as much the main central message. And we've been given this metaphor of the Christian life being a long distance race. Following Christ is a spiritual marathon and we need to train and to use our spiritual muscles to succeed. See verses 1 to 3 in this chapter presented us with the basics. We run thrown off our hindrances and our sin, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We looked at verses 4 to 11, how they spoke of how we're to endure the hardships of this race as a spiritual discipline. And verses 12 reminded us of the importance of finishing well and keeping peace. And one thing, I think, for me that's come through this chapter so far, and to be honest, the whole book as we've read it together, 
And something that I'm sure we all know really well is that the Christian life isn't easy. The race that we're on is challenging. And the Hebrew Christians that were first reading this were finding it hard as well. See, the spiritual race is just like a physical race that we experience. Starting off can be really positive. It could be lots of fun, but then it gets harder. You might get a blister, dodgy joints, and things that afflict us along the way. And then you can hit the wall. Um, I've started couch to 5K many times, um, and I hit the wall pretty early on, generally around week three, and, um, and yet to succeed. Um, but Emily, my wife, has always been there encouraging me to keep going because she did it and uh, kept running for quite a while up until she got pregnant. And there's never been anyone telling me to give up when I've done it. It's only ever been encouragement to do it. And I know that I should probably crack on with it again. We enjoy watching the London Marathon as well in our house a lot. Um, each April, we love seeing the silly costumes, seeing the stamina of those elite athletes. They're absolutely incredible, aren't they? But what stands out to me more than anything when watching that is the encouragement of everyone there, the positivity, the encouragement of the reporters, BBC reporters being encouraging. Um, that's a rarity, isn't it? We see family and friends and spectators, everyone cheering everyone on, helping them to finish. See, the Hebrew church at this point had hit the wall. This spiritual race had gotten really tough for them, but they didn't have people cheering them on. And that's where we see the real difference between the spiritual race and the physical race. The analogy kind of ends. Maybe inside these walls, in our homes, our Barnabas communities, we know that being, we're being cheered on in our race. But in the outside world, we're questioned about what we believe. Temptation is all around us, and all sorts of challenges are coming our way. The Jewish Christians who first read this faced all those same challenges we do. But they were also mocked for leaving the Jewish faith behind, mocked by family and friends and the leaders of the synagogues. They'd have heard voices telling them that they're going the wrong way. You're on the wrong path. You're headed away from Sinai and Jerusalem. You've left your heritage, the ways of Abraham and Moses. You've left the nation that is blessed by God. That's the kind of thing they'd have been told. But what we've just read is what the Hebrew Christians are given as an encouragement, a positive voice to cheer them on, on the race that is before them. Now, it's not written in the text, but the mountain that we first read of in verse 18, the burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, is Mount Sinai. See, the author didn't need to mention it, because the Hebrew Christians would have known straight away. Actually, if we were Jewish Christians here reading Hebrews, it'd be so much easier. We wouldn't need to explain the majority of the text. We'd have just known it. And hopefully you remember in the Old Testament where Mount Sinai comes from, where we see that significant moment, where we see these things that are described. And it's the receiving of the Ten Commandments. That's the moment the author is speaking of. This was an awesome physical display of God's power and his holiness. I'm going to just read from Exodus 19, and we'll see the symmetry between the two. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. 
It's an amazing picture, isn't it, of the power of God. But there were many preparations to get to that point. There was ritual washing, abstinence from sex, all making them clean to be clean and to come into the presence of God. Then it happened after that ritual cleansing. The presence of God descended in power and might, that awesome display of strength. And can you imagine what it would have been like there to be on that day? Can you imagine the imagery? You see, because that's what the Jewish Jews had been holding to all that time. They'd been imagining what it was. They knew what had happened. There was such power and holiness in what they were reading. It had such an effect on those people who first stood there on that day. I love the way that the commentator, Kent Hughes, puts it when writing about it. He says the people were visibly, physically assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God. This palpable display on Sinai communicated far more than any speech or written word ever could. All of this reminded Israel that God was far too holy for them to approach. In fact, coming near to God, near to this mountain, as we've read, meant death. And the effect of all of this is given in Exodus 20, where it says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But they had no way of overcoming that sin, did they? It was just the fear to stop them sinning. They knew the consequence for sin. They knew that sin displeased God and that they couldn't be unclean before him, but didn't have a way in that moment to overcome it. So what the Hebrew Christians are being told in these first verses here is don't look back. They're actually getting a little bit of a slap on the wrist. Don't listen to what people are saying to you. Instead, remember the grace of God and where he is now leading to you. Remember that this act of God was always pointing to something greater than Messiah. That's what we come to next in verse 22. Remember that he is leading you to Mount Zion, the place of God's abundant grace. And it's an amazing description, isn't it? It's a reminder that now that they can overcome sin by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read those verses again. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word blood of Abel. These verses probably became for that church a confession, maybe a song that they'd sing together. And as I've read those verses, for me, what comes to mind is a picture of the crowd stood on the edge of the racetrack, shouting them, speaking them over them as they're running this race of life, this spiritual marathon, spurring them on, reminding them of where they're heading. And there are seven things listed here that remind them of why they are to persevere and why we are to persevere in our spiritual walks. And we're going to go through each one. So firstly, it says that we have come to the city of the living God. Mount Zion was the place where the temple was constructed, where Solomon built the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. In Christ, we come to its heavenly counterpart. We come to the place where God's Spirit dwells. 
as Christians, we are citizens of the heavenly city, now in the spirit and one day to come in the flesh. And through Jesus, we are seen as holy, able to enter into now the presence of God without fear of death. Verse 22, it says, you have come. It's in the perfect tense, meaning, you, meaning it's continual, it's permanent, reminding us that even when the spiritual race we run gets hard, we are always citizens of the heavenly city. You have come. It's a continual reminder of that. But I think there's also a reminder here in the words, you've come to Mount Zion, and that we always come to the temple of God, because now our own bodies are the temple of his Holy Spirit. Our hearts are his dwelling place. And that should be an encouragement for us. And as we read on, as the Church of Christ, we come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. It's easy here to see, isn't it, the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Moses tells us that there's thousands and thousands of angels blowing trumpets that brought fear. But here we gather with them in joyful praise of God. God is to be feared, but we do not need to be afraid of him. We're to come before him with joy and gladness, joining with the eternal song of heaven. I want to say, if you don't feel joy at the moment, ask God for that joy now. Think about the angels gathering together to praising God and ask for the joy that they have. At Christmas, we use this blessing where we ask for the joy of the angels. And that's a prayer that shouldn't really just be used for Christmas, that we should use all the time to pray that God would give us that joy. So as we continue verse 23, it says, We have come to the church of the firstborn. Now, that's a sermon, really, in itself, just that one little line, because it is so, so powerful and so significant, and it's a reminder of our inheritance as believers. See, we know in the culture of that day that only the firstborn son would inherit from the father. Yet as believers, we all receive the full inheritance, both men and women, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh child, all receives the same abundant blessing that our heavenly father has for us because we are co-heirs with christ it tells us that in romans 8 i want to see if you think back to chapter 1 the first week we looked at in hebrews it tells us that we are heirs of all things with christ that is a massive encouragement for us this day moving on in the chapter we see next we come to god the judge of all it's important to remember that the God who was on Mount Sinai in the pillar of fire is the same God we come to now. And it's important to remember that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. But we remember that Jesus has now dealt with our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we don't come to God afraid of his power, but in awe of who he is. Respectful fear, knowing that God has power, but the word of God says to do not be afraid. We come instead praising God for that awe, praising God for who he is, for his just 
and loving nature as our judge. Fifth thing, we've done four, we're getting there. Fifthly, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That means we're part of one big family together. We are the family of God that spans all of time. God's salvation is for all those who have gone before us and for those who are yet to come. So when the race gets tough, remember that other people have walked this journey before you and they've done it because scripture says that they are now with their heavenly father. They're the righteous made perfect. That's what happens when we go to be with Jesus. We're made perfect before him. So the next thing, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Again, there's a whole talk just in that one little phrase, such powerful words. I think here it's significant that Christ's human name is used, Jesus. We come to Jesus. We come to a man, someone who's like us, someone who is for us, but one who is perfect in every way. He's not fallen and afraid like Moses was, the mediator of the old covenant, but he's perfect in every way, the beloved son with whom the father is pleased. And it's because of Jesus standing in the gap as our mediator, we can have confidence to come close to God. We can draw near to him. Remember in chapter 4, when we looked at that 16, it tells us that because of Jesus, we have mercy as we come to the throne. We can come with full confidence in him. And the last bit of verse 24 says, finally, we have confidence because of the sprinkled blood. The word that this sprinkled blood speaks is forgiveness. The sprinkled blood of Jesus is forgiveness for all those who trust in him. Abel's blood was spilt in jealousy, the jealousy of his brother. But the blood of Jesus was spilt in a sacrificial love, the love of the Father God, giving his one and only son so that we might have eternal life. And that is the best word that can ever be spoken the best news you will ever hear, that Jesus' blood was spilt so that you may have eternal life. The blood of Jesus is freedom and it's life. It's life in all its fullness. And I just want to remind us again that these are seven things that we come to now. The passage doesn't say there's seven things that you've been to or that you're coming to, but that we're coming to now for all of time. They're a continual thing that we come to. They are for those who are in Jesus. They're things that are meant to spur us on in the race of life, things that help us to fix our eyes on Jesus when stuff gets hard, when so many other things compete for our attention. So I want to encourage you, maybe you need to learn these three verses. It's only three verses. It shouldn't be too difficult. Learn them. Remember them. 
so you can speak them over yourself when things get tough. Maybe just post them up in the, in the bathroom and maybe on a mirror or up in the kitchen somewhere or in your hallway. I love writing scripture over the house. We have a little door frame where um, Ellie and Emily write up little words of encouragement on. I'd love you to do that. To think, remember these verses when things get difficult. Maybe you need to sit and speak them over yourself as we come to communion shortly today. See, because then we come to another reminder. We're drawing to the end of this passage. And we've seen it in chapter 2, verse 3, and in chapter 10, 28 to 29. And this is the first of two responses which close this chapter. And the first one is that we must obey God's word. Don't neglect the salvation that we are being offered. So remember that the Israelites went back on their word and they ended up dying in the desert. They never made it to the promised land. Those people who first heard what happened on that mountain because they disobeyed God. They chose not to obey him. Choosing to ignore God, refusing what he has for us, leads us to death and to face the consequences of our sin for all of eternity. So I want to encourage you to obey the word of God, choose to trust in him and accept his forgiveness. Verse 26, moving on. So it's the analogy of the two mountains you see continues here, doesn't it? When Moses spoke, when God spoke to Moses, sorry, it was like thunder and the earth shook. And one day, it's going to happen again. The writer quotes from Haggai 2, 6 here. There is coming a day when God will bring about a new order. See, what we see now is only temporary. We must remember that one day there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth where God will bring about his kingdom in all its fullness. That really is the end point for us, the goal that we're fixing our eyes to. All sin will end and no imperfection will remain. Everything will be made new. Remember it says in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's what is to come. And this isn't something that should lead us to fear, but something that should encourage us. And why is that? Because we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. The new heaven and the new earth is going to be so good, better than we can ever imagine. It's a gift of God for our obedience to his word. When God comes again and shakes everything into a new order, we who believe in him will remain because we are part of that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that we're part of that kingdom, that we will be with you for all eternity. See, the author is drawing here our eyes to the end point, which in some ways in reality is just the beginning. It's not the end, it's the start of all eternity with Jesus, but the end of that spiritual race here on earth. So the first command is to obey the word of God. And the second response here is that we worship. We give thanks, we remember what God has done for us and who he is and we're to be thankful. We worship God because of who he is. I love the word here. I find it really interesting where it says to worship acceptably. I find that really interesting. And it's something that when I was uh, first started leading worship as a teenager, they were always encouraged to pray that our worship would be acceptable to God. Have you considered that 
as we sing and as you worship God in your lives, in your homes, in your, as we worship God in our day-to-day lives. God, is my worship to you acceptable? And I'll ask the question of it, does it really capture who God is? Does our worship capture the God of the whole Bible, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New? Because the same God that we see who came in that pillar of fire is the same God who we see in Jesus and the same God that we see in the gift of his Holy Spirit. So remember, when we come to worship God, we worship the God of power and of might, that blazing fire, the consuming fire, that fire that refines us, a fire that can never be put out. I'm going to pray for us now as we come to a close. Lord, we thank you so much for this encouragement that we see here in Hebrews for our spiritual race, the marathon that we're on. Lord, we thank you that we're citizens of the heavenly city. We thank you that there are those who have gone before us. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus, you're the mediator who stands between us and the Father, who pleads on our behalf, who bridges the gap. And Lord, help us to look towards what is coming. Lord, thank you that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. When everything else fails, when everything goes, that the kingdom of God will still remain. Lord, may that be an encouragement for us this day. Lord, may it lead us to worship you, worship that is acceptable before you, our God who is an all-consuming fire. We thank you, Lord. Amen.